today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, I'm Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Podcast. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe and tell all of your friends. Coming up on today's show, China and more China. How has the relationship changed now that China has sentenced a Canadian man to death? We'll talk about that and China's role in Canada's opioid crisis. It's all coming up along with pot shops in Hamilton. The council says yes. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Going to spend the uh, first hour talking about China and what has evolved out of this story that started uh, before Christmas with the detaining and arrest of uh, Huawei CFO and uh, the bail and what transpired there and then the detainment of two Canadians. Now we fast forward to a scenario where a Canadian who was charged with drug trafficking in China, convicted of that charge, sentenced to 15 years, uh, is then plucked sort of back out of jail and uh, some saying the, the sentence too lenient, retried uh, very quickly, and next thing you know, he has been sentenced to death and has, I guess, now less than 10 days to appeal all this. I want to get right to this because we only have a limited amount of time with our first guest, Hugh Stevens, Distinguished Fellow, Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada, a fellow Canadian Global Affairs Institute, and is with us now. Hugh, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, my first question, how? what is your thought on how this has evolved since the beginning of December. Well, thank you, Scott. Um, I mean, it's been one escalation after the other, as we have seen with China piling up the pressure and uh, increasing the rhetoric, and frankly, the increasing rhetoric on both sides. And so now we have the situation with uh, uh, Mr. Schellenberger, uh, as you outlined. Uh, I think, uh, you know, the Chinese have been in a way, kind of clever in this regard, because after the first two people they uh, they detained on very vague national security grounds, they've sort of dredged into their legal system and found somebody who is, you know, for many Canadians, a less than sympathetic character, uh, being convicted, my understanding from press reports, a number of times in Canada of similar offenses, and uh, have now thrown the book at him. It's clearly politically motivated, but they're trying to make a point that they have a legal system too. Uh, that being said, on that legal system, uh, especially when you're uh, referred to the CFO in, in the Vancouver case, uh, we live in a democracy. It's very easy to find out what the rules and regulations, uh, you know, what the rules of engagement are, how we play, how we enforce our laws. So how can China not, I, I mean, I, I can completely understand that they don't agree with it, but how can they claim that they don't understand what's going on and somehow compare that to a system that is the exact opposite? Well, I'm sure they do understand, certainly sophisticated people in China understand what's going on, uh, but they still uh, seem to feel that uh, by increasing the pressure on Canada that somehow this will come to a resolution in a way that they will like, and it might. The court process might in the end result in uh, Ms. Meng uh, being, uh, being set free. We'll have to see what happens. But uh, their system is very much uh, tit for tat, and of course their criminal system is, is a little clearer than, uh, than the national security system. It's not the kind of system that we're used to, but they're now using that pretext to look at the evidence, and there appears to be a fair amount of evidence in this case, and uh, what's, what's, really, uh, what's really politicized it, of course, is the rapid uh, um, uh, bringing to higher profile of this particular case, and of course the sentence. Uh, obviously, it can take a while for the CFO's case to go through the courts. Is this going to continue until that happens? What's after this? 
Well, I think we'll have to wait and see. I mean, I think the most immediate priority is what's going to happen with uh, with Mr. Schoenberger. And uh, he's in a very awkward situation right now. I'm frankly concerned that uh, in, in, in upping the rhetoric on both sides and calling the uh, sentence arbitrary and so forth, that, uh, he, that he's being painted into a corner in some ways. I mean, I'm not absolving the Chinese of this, but I do think we need to find ways to de-escalate and that it may be helpful to, uh, to moderate some of the reaction if we want to try and save his life, frankly, and, uh, and, and uh, appeal to the Chinese on the basis of uh, uh, the Chinese justice system having both uh, both compassion and and punishment elements, and maybe the Chinese would respond to that. But if we push them into a corner, my fear is that they're going to say, "Well, just you don't think we can do it? Just watch." Uh, other than toning down the rhetoric, what are the Canadian options here? Well, I think on the one hand, with Miss um, Meng, all we can do is be as uh, squeaky clean, above board, uh, depoliticize the process as we have all along. That's all we can do. That's the, that's the only defensible position. And uh, try and engage with the Chinese, keep the dialogue open, uh, see if there are ways that, uh, that uh, we can de-escalate and continue, of course, to advocate both publicly and behind closed doors for the Canadians who are in detention, all of whom face quite different situ- uh, circumstances. Uh, we all, when this first started, it didn't seem to uh, have much attention on the on the world stage. Uh, the U.S. hadn't commented. How does this change everything? Well, Canada has consciously gone out and asked for support. The U.S. was a little slow and uh, uh, not terribly robust in its initial reaction, but I gather this has now been brought up uh, with the White House. The U.S. has commented, and a number of our allies have commented. I think China is feeling increasingly uncomfortable, and that explains why they have chosen uh, a kind of a case that everybody can understand, drug, drug trafficking, to try and make their point. But clearly we have to keep up the pressure, but at the same time, you you also have to find a way to, uh, to re-engage the dialogue, because the Chinese are not going to buckle under this pressure, nor are we in terms of the, of, of the rule of law issue. So we have to find a way to try and defuse this at the same time that we all stand on our principles. Uh, we know what lessons we're learning. What is China learning through this exercise? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I would hope that the message is starting to filter through that in behaving the way they do with, uh, with Canada and these, and these uh, Canadian individuals, two of whom at least are, in my view, are being held hostage, uh, they are sending a message that it is, it is risky to do business with China, that you do so at your peril, that if the winds change, uh, you could be caught in a difficult situation. And hopefully they have, they have broader issues to consider. Right now, of course, they're working on their issues with the U.S., and they've been very circumspect in not uh, getting offside with the U.S. But this message is starting to resonate globally, and I think some of the upping of the ratcheting up of the action in China is a result of the pressure that they're feeling. Hugh Stevens has been with us, Distinguished Fellow, Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada, Fellow, Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Hugh, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. Bye-bye. It is 12-17. Going to move on. Michael Tobe is with us, Troy Media Syndicated columnist and contributor to the Washington Times. He is with us now. Michael, thanks for your time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. How, in your mind, does this change the discussion now that uh, this man has been sentenced to death? Yeah, well, I mean, look, at least Canada has finally done something and said something properly. We've been basically the federal government has been skirting around the issue now for weeks. So at least here, this is a a strong statement in the sense that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is saying that it's of extreme concern to us as a government and should also be a concern, I'm just sort of paraphrasing, to various allies internationally. And that's 
you know, that's the message you and I have talked about now for a few weeks, and that's really what he should have said from the very, very beginning. But at least, if nothing else, it's a strong response. The United States has, has now reacted as well, and clearly they're irritated with this, with this, um, this, uh, this whole thing. Uh, other countries internationally, including from Europe, are starting to look at it more closely. At least now it's getting the attention that it should. This obviously doesn't necessarily mean that Mr. Schellenberger is necessarily safe. Unfortunately, you know, the death penalty in China is not usually reversed, or at least historically it isn't. But at least, if nothing else, it gives something for the Chinese government to think about that a lot of countries are now moving against them. And it's not just a Canada versus China issue any longer. It's now the world against China, or at least democracies against China. And that's important. Uh, are you concerned that this is ramping up the rhetoric? Obviously, this isn't going to do much for uh, the man that's being detained there and, and now retried for this. No, but on the other hand, if you don't put any rhetoric behind it, nothing would happen. Like, if we had basically gone through private uh, diplomatic channels, which was always an option, and my guess is those channels were open, the back channels, and they were talking, clearly nothing was happening at all, because Mr. Schellenberger's original 15-year sentence was changed to the death penalty. I mean, it's completely different. And to be sentenced by death is is a huge switch. It's not unique for China. There have been many examples where foreign nationals have been charged with X, sentenced to Y, and changed to Z. This has happened before. It just hasn't really affected our country, that being Canada. Um, So, yes, I'm not saying that rhetoric necessarily is the best way to handle these things. On the other hand, if the diplomatic way is not working, then you have to try something different. And at least through the rhetoric, we are getting the attention of our Western allies, and there are more countries, including the United States, now looking towards this case as a real problem, and more importantly, an international problem. Uh, Over time, Michael, we know in the past there's always been issues, there's always been speed bumps, there's always been uh, hurdles to cross when it comes to the merging of of various cultures and trying to do business and such around the world. Sure. That being said, uh, has this gone from that to this is a game changer. This is something, this is, you know, um, using a, you know, a mallet on a tack, so to speak. Uh, is this changing the dialogue as opposed to, oh, just another problem that we have to solve and it's going to take a while to get us out of this? Well, look, it's hard to say right now whether it's a game cha- changer simply because, you know, the events that have occurred are very new or still pretty fresh. But yes, I think it's interesting. I, you know, the, the Chinese government or China in general, no matter how much, say, I despise communism and it's way, you know, the way that they've treated their citizens, their human rights abuses and various other things, and their rejection of free speech, free elections, etc., the Chinese are usually pretty good, at least in terms of taking certain steps or moving a few steps ahead whenever they get into a bit of a matter involving an international conflict. This might be actually one of those rare times where they made a misstep by isolating this case, especially in the middle of the whole arrest of Meng Wanzhou from Huawei Technologies, which occurred in Vancouver last, late last year, and now have sort of upped the ante by taking a Canadian who had been detained in China, changing his sentence to death, and suddenly now the world is paying more attention to it and is actually looking at this, this one case, which 
I think ordinarily uh, no one would have even paid a, a second notice to mm. unless the China had sort of reacted this way. The Chinese tend to be very methodical in the way they handle things. We don't have to like them or respect them to understand why they do that. They've done it because, generally speaking, since they became a communist dictatorship in uh, 1949, that's how they generally operated. However, this is a misstep. It definitely is, yeah. and it's the one advantage, quite frankly, that Canada has to make this into an international issue, and it has become that way, not because Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was this great progressive hero and savior that some people believe him to be, which he's not, obviously. It's because the Chinese may have miscalculated how far they can go in the Schellenberger case. Uh, interesting you use the word methodical, because that is what seems to be missing here. Uh, has that changed? our attitude towards China from one of uh, methodical golden goose to one of aggression? Well, I mean, certainly when now that there has been highlighting the past few weeks about the two Canadians who were detained, that school teacher in Alberta, she's since been released, and you and I have also talked about this, other various reports from the Globe and Mail and other organizations about somewhere in the neighborhood of, of tens or hundreds of Canadians who have been caught in some sort of a web where they've been arrested by the Chinese government. Most of them have been released, but basically there's just this cycle that's been going on behind the scenes that you know some people may have known about, but the, the majority of the population didn't. I think it is going to change our perception of China, not in the sense of not being able to deal with them economically, which, as I've said to you, is a very, very different issue, and you can't ignore an economic superpower, or basically an economic superpower like China, who is basically in through our lives. As I've often said, you can just look through your kitchen. You'll find lots of appliances yeah. and things made by them. I don't see Canadians taking them en masse and throwing them all out at once and saying, I'm never going to buy anything from China again. On the other hand, it does change the way we look at China and our political and economic relationship. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, at least I think now, based on today's statement, recognizes that he cannot deal with the Chinese government in the same way as before, and he cannot obviously walk on eggshells any longer with respect to these two Canadians who are detained, and Mr. Schoenberg, and basically because his life is on the line as of right now. So that may be a change in the way we look at Canada, that, or sorry, that we look at China. Yes, it's not really sort of a methodical country, but more one of aggression, as you suggested. On the other hand, if this matter, now that it's sort of caught the tentacles of a lot of different countries. If it can get resolved or reversed or something in the next little while, that being the next few days or hopefully a week or two, that would at least lower the, the tensions a little bit. Maybe the icy relations would eventually stabilize, and maybe we can find some sort of a path to move forward. But certainly this example and other examples are showing that all Western countries have to be extremely leery of China in various ways. Not that we haven't been already. Most countries have been in terms of the way they dealt with the Chinese communist government. 
But now we sort of realize that China is basically willing to do almost anything to ensure that their goals, usually private, are met. And this is one example where, as I said, I think it's a misstep, but they obviously tried to up the ante with Mr. Schellenberg and with Canada in general based on their frustration, and it's now clear that it's frustration, over what's happening with uh, Meng Wanzhou of Huawei Technologies. And considering uh, what that CFO means to China and yep. obviously what China's willing to do in order to get her back, will they try to get And this? I feel, you know, it just feels bizarre asking this question. Okay. Will they do something to try to get her out of Canada? Huh. Well, I'll give you a bizarre answer. I mean, anything is possible. I'm not suggesting that's going to happen. And I think you and I can say without having, you know, having not discussed the question beforehand, I think we both agree this is not the, the way we want it to happen. But at the same time, look, I don't know. I think China, generally speaking, allows processes to move forward in different ways, that being either domestically or internationally. Certainly, there has been a lot of concern with China when it comes to security and safety, but that, generally speaking, has to do with things such as Huawei with their 5G network and whether we can sort of trust what's being discussed or, or move back and forth via email, text, or just basic web searches, whether we have any concern that China might steal some of our secrets. To think on that level that they would do something because they're so frustrated with Meng Wanzhou being in a, in a Vancouver jail right now, I just have to say this, and, and although it's not impossible, I can't believe they would dare to try something like this. Yeah. But I think if we've learned anything now about society, and I think both you and I recognize this, yeah. Anything is possible today. Let's just hope it doesn't come to that. All right, one last one, and real quick. um, uh, Considering the level of aggression, does this necessarily mean that China or Huawei is guilty or has something to hide of the charges that the U.S. has suggested? Well, look, it's hard to say. Justice is blind, as they often say, so who knows? But look, let's put it this way. From the beginning, we weren't sure necessarily that the Canadians detained in China were related to Huawei. That was just a suspicion at one point. I think now as the weeks have moved along, the issues have moved along, and with the change in the Schellenberg case, you have to now assume, if nothing else, a lot of this is tied to what happened with uh, Meng Wanzhou of Huawei. And I, I don't really think there is now a way to say it's all a bunch of coincidences that just sort of keep happening over and over again, like a domino effect. There does seem to be some sort of direct tie between this, meaning that the Chinese government is very frustrated with this situation, meaning that we should be more worried about Huawei's influence in not only Canada, but North America, and also meaning that Mr. Schellenberg's case has to be dealt with immediately because clearly the Chinese have changed the temperature, the political temperature, that is, quite a great deal. Michael Tobe, Troy Media, syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, thank you so much. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a good day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The article says the opioid crisis and record-setting deaths counts caused by fentanyl flooding into Canada could get worse because of a growing diplomatic dispute between China. Uh, Canadian law enforcement agencies have found that the fentanyl and its chemical per- uh, uh, 
precursors are mostly produced in southern China factories and sent to North America via shipping containers and the mail. In public, Canada's federal government claims they're in cooperation with China in the fight against fentanyl. It isn't politically feasible for Ottawa to openly criticize Beijing on the opioid crisis, especially as the two governments pursue deeper trade ties. Uh, Let's bring in Sam Cooper, a national online journalist, investigative reporting Global News with us now. Sam, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Are you surprised how this is evol- has uh, evolved over time? Uh, what can you tell us about this Schellenberg case? Was he taking drugs into China or exporting drugs out of China? Because we're sort of getting two different reports here. The allegations that I'm aware of were that uh, he was uh, caught in a scheme uh, for exporting drugs from, chi- from southern China, from Guangdong, into Australia. And so uh, he has denied those charges. But generally speaking, you know, what I can add to this conversation is that uh, he has been sentenced in in British Columbia for for drug trafficking charges. He was warned by a Canadian judge, you're lucky you live in Canada, you shouldn't be doing this activity. We know from, from our investigation that southern China British Columbia and Australia are a, a strong, I'll call it a triangle of drug, uh, drug circulation, cash circulation. So whether he's uh, in fact guilty, uh, you know, it doesn't look good for him on that. But uh, again, uh, China does have the power to, to sentence people to death in drug trafficking cases. And uh that's where he is right now. It's interesting because uh, on one report it says uh, he was detained for four years for smuggling enormous amount of drugs into China and then goes on to say that, as you just mentioned, from China to Australia. So is this exposing China's involvement in drug production? They're making it sound like he's polluting their country when in fact what he's doing is moving their product out of their country. Well, look, yes, if you if you look deeper, and I, I had the same thoughts, the, the allegations are that methamphetamines were being run out of China, southern China, into Australia. And I can tell you from our investigations that the factories that were producing, you know, methamphetamine, ecstasy, precursors, all of these toxic chemicals are the same ones that are producing the fentanyl, the NPP, which is a precursor, and running them into BC and using uh, British Columbia as a hub to move move these uh, deadly synthetic narcotics around the world. So yes, uh, he apparently is part of uh, a global drug trade run out of uh, southern China, according to the allegations. But if China wants to sentence some people to death, you could fairly ask, why aren't they investigating the factories that are producing these chemicals? Why aren't they going after the officials that, that allegedly are corrupted and allow these fa- these factories to, to push these deadly drugs around the world? That's exactly what my point is in my next question was, Sam. They're trying to make it look as if Schellenberg is some sort of uh, the person who's corrupting their society, when in fact this guy is just a mule for their drug production. Is that accurate? I don't know the case uh, extremely well, but from my reading of British Columbia cases and my reading of the allegations, he was seen as a a lower, well, let's say a mid-level drug trafficker in British Columbia. And so if you send him over to China and put him within uh, that structure, we could say that he was a, a lower level likely player, according to the allegations and how they fit in. 
Again, what our investigation showed, at the top of the chain, we have strong evidence that it is politically connected factory owners and officials in China that are the top level global drug traffickers at this point. So a Mr. Schellenberg uh, would be very much lower than the people that are actually in control of this trade. Uh, now that we are where we are and a Canadian sentenced to death, why are we now not openly discussing what you said was kept quiet because we're, we're hoping for the golden goose here? Uh, considering where we are, Sam, why are we not bringing out their role in our drug production, in our drug problems? Well, uh, our reporting did point to those facts, and as we reported, the police and military... Why aren't we doing on... this politically, Sam? Why isn't our government jumping on your reports? That's a, that's a question that would, I think, best be put to Minister Bill Blair and Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau. I would be one that, said, that would say our government does need to be open about this. We do have some people like Senator Vernon White saying, hey, look, China has to be held to account for the drugs they're sending into Canada. We haven't yet seen uh, someone stand up in the House of Commons and bang the table and say to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, why aren't you demanding that? I would think that a lot of Canadians, now that we know more and more about how China reacts diplomatically, uh, what they should be doing for us. And uh, I'm hopeful we can see that in, the, in this year. Are we turning a blind eye to this because of the business opportunities, the money to be made? I really hope that's not the case for Canadian politicians, but I will tell you this, that uh, our reporting is raising the pressure for a public inquiry in British Columbia. Some smart people in the bureaucracy of Canada I talk to say they believe corruption has existed in BC to allow the situation to get that bad. And I, for one, believe that Canada's public deserves an inquiry to figure out if people, elected officials in Canada or bureaucrats have turned a blind eye because of things like uh, the money coming in from China is pumping up Canada's economy. Uh, will this end what's happened uh, since December and, and the detainment of the CFO of Huawei? Will this eventually expose these secrets? Will it expose their involvement in, uh, in drug production? I'm not sure that those cases would cross over at all. I have uh, no information indicating that. But what we do know from the allegations is it's alleged that Huawei officials were involved in, uh, in, in uh, confusing global banks as to the monies that they were moving around the world. If those allegations are true, it's a form of money laundering. I would think that if this case goes forward in the United States, those would be the kind of information that, that would be of interest to Canadians and whether this company should be allowed to continue in Canada. Uh, don't you think that the death sentence uh, uh, for this man will implicate the drug industry, will bring the drug industry into this conversation? I'm not sure if it'll uh, raise the debate in Canada about where the, uh, where the methamphetamine he was allegedly involved with, where it was actually produced, but it, uh, if you're asking me, I think it should. It's very clear that the 200 alleged uh, kilograms of methamphetamine connected to them were produced in southern China.
So is do you think Canadians will just write this guy off and go, well, look at him, he's a bad apple anyway. He went and he did it in China, as the judge said. You know, he gets what he gets. Uh, so are Canadians going to feel sorry for this guy, or are they going to dig a little deeper and realize, no, he's just a pawn in their jug in their in China's drug production and bringing it here, bringing it to Western countries. I'm not sure how they'll see this emotionally, but I think Canadians are seeing this in the context of the Huawei case. And uh, I'm hopeful that it opens their eyes further to the, the issue of these drugs being produced in southern China and how they fit into the global drug trade. Uh, Sam Cooper has been with us, national online journalist, investigative reporter, Global News. And if you want to head back and uh, read up on this, China won't stop flood of fentanyl into Canada. Sources say it was first published December 1st, 2018. Uh, Great reporting, Sam. And again, turns out to be more relevant today even than it was then. Keep going. Thanks very much, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hamilton has chosen to opt into uh, having retail pot shops which, you know, I think it's hilarious, the, the tap dance that council goes through whenever there's an issue like this. I mean, my goodness. Can we make, can we make a decision without going around and around and around in circles and getting dizzy and falling down? Uh, the debate over whether to welcome legal cannabis stores in Hamilton has ended in strange fashion. Well, what a surprise. Is the councillor, is Councillor Whitehead still doing his uh, consola- uh, consultation with the residents over LRT? Has he finished that yet? All right. The debate over whether to welcome legal cannabis stores into Hamilton has ended in strange fashion. City Council symbolically voted, symbolically voted 10 to 6 to opt in late Monday afternoon, yesterday afternoon, but they had pretty much already decided that after Ward 4 Councillor Sam Marula's motion to opt out was defeated in an 8-8 stalemate. Stalemate. Tie means nothing happens. So before they're voting whether to allow these in to the city, they're voting whether they should be opting out. It does seem a little counterproductive, doesn't it? Uh, The divided council's decision means Hamilton will be on the map when Ontario's first 25 licensed retail cannabis stores open up in April. Mayor Fred Eisenberger believes the city ultimately ended up in the right place. The mayor says that a lot. (laughs) He's, yeah, I know. I know, geez, we went through hell and high water and backwards and frontwards and then backwards and backwards and backwards again and then around three times, but we eventually got to where we needed to be. Is anybody nauseous yet? It's worse than, it's worse than a ride at Wonderland. Uh, we ended up in the same place, says the mayor, and will be part of an industry that is growing and is going to happen either legally or illegally. Uh, Eisenberger adds that he much prefers to be on the legal side of the issue. Uh, Marula complained that the provincial and federal governments are not sharing enough tax revenue to offset municipal licensing and enforcement costs. So his answer was, his motion, motion suggested opting out and then ganging up with other like-minded municipalities who, you know, the municipalities that are bailing I don't think they're bailing because they want more money. They're bailing because they don't want them in their town. So I don't even think the motives are the same here. 
But the councillor suggested that opting out and working with other like-minded municipalities to gang up on the government and renegotiate to get us a better deal. And who is the voice of reason on all of this? Stony Creek's Brad, uh, Brad Clark. The voice of reason, thank goodness, at City Council insists that standing on the outside with our arms crossed would have no impact. Sam? Clark says opting in allows the city to say that we want to be a part of the process. We want to actually move the yardsticks on a number of issues that we believe remain unsolved. That sounds like a smart thing to do, doesn't it? No, let's just stand on the sidelines and protest with the other cities that don't want it, even though they don't want it for the same reasons that we don't want it. Uh, The issues, uh, control over location, uh, dissatisfaction with provincial rules that require only 150 meter separation from schools, and on and on and on it goes. So uh, eventually after the grandstanding and all of that sort of stuff, as the mayor said, we ended up we were where we were supposed to be anyway. Which is on the legal side of an illegal, an illegal industry. And I think what I found fascinating in all of this, Hamilton's one of the cities, if not the city, with the most illegal dispensaries still operating. Proving there's a massive demand for this. Let's opt out. Why? Well, because then we'll hold them, we'll put their feet to the fire. You give us more, we're not going to let you sell in Hamilton. Meanwhile, they've reduced the number of stores from 40, which the Win Liberals said, then it was going to go up to uh, 1,000, and now it's down to 25. So... The laws of supply and demand would say they've just become more valuable because there's less of them. So why would you want to opt out? It would appear, counselor, <laughs> that it's not in our favor. They would seem to have more momentum on this, considering the way it's all rolling out. But that doesn't stop the grandstanding. And a vote before a vote that makes the vote that you're going to take irrelevant. Who's the cartoon character here? All right, let's move on. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Hamilton has chosen to opt in. Let's bring in uh, Michael Armstrong, Associate Professor, Goodman School of Business, Brock University, uh, Kitchener, Waterloo, St. Catharines, St. Thomas. Uh, all look, uh, I guess Burlington was still... Uh, late last night, undecided. Now they have decided to go with it. Uh, Oakville, I believe, is out. And let's talk to Michael about all of this. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Happy to join you. Are you surprised that communities are opting out of this? Um, not really. A, a little disappointed, but I guess I wouldn't say surprised. I mean, uh, the saying is all politics is local, so every community has its own local issues, uh, personalities and such. Um, the uh, the uh, pageant it's pageantry that you just described happening in Hamilton Council is uh, kind of an example of that. Um, the pageantry, I love that term. <laughs> it's a polite. Although that somehow makes it more elegant than what it really is. 
Uh, yeah, uh, it's to some extent politics is theater. You want to put on a good show for your the people you represent, uh, even if you don't necessarily believe in what you're saying, and uh, you know you're going to end up going down a certain path anyway. Well, well, we have okay, one well. counselor here. Like LRT is already in the process of moving forward, and we've got one that's just decided now to uh, perhaps consult his constituents and why they like it and don't like it. It's bizarre. Anyway, I'm getting off topic here. Um, yeah. What so, is the advantages and the disadvantage of opting in and opting out? Well, the uh, the immediate advantage is uh, the one that prevent, the provincial government has presented is just in terms of funding. Uh, communities that opt in are getting a little more funding up front uh, to pay for uh, police uh, enforcement, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, but more important, uh, opting in uh, means you start to get some legal stores that can actually start to compete with all those illegal dispensaries. And from my perspective, that's that's the big issue. I mean, that was the whole purpose, or at least the main purpose that the federal government had when they brought in legalization, is to say, look, there's people who are using this stuff, whether it's good for them or not. There are people who are selling this stuff, whether that's a good thing or not. So let's get uh, some legal alternatives. Let's have some licensed providers uh, that at least we can inspect and make sure their, their products aren't contaminated, they're carefully labeled. Let's get some uh, legal uh, vendors to actually retail the stuff so you can uh, go buy it and know what you're getting. Uh, so opting in means your areas, your municipalities, are starting to get those uh, licensed products from licensed sellers instead of going onto the black market. What about opting out and using that as leverage to get yourself a better deal, as one counselor here has suggested? Well... That would be a better question from one of my political science colleagues, but I kind of look at the current provincial government and say, you know, how concerned is Doug Ford about uh, municipal concerns, given that he uh, chopped Toronto Council in half last year? So I don't think that's a very promising approach, but, you know, hey, maybe the politicians know better than I do. Uh, at the end of the day, it, will this it, it, are, are municipalities making a decision which could affect, could affect them later on? I, I, I mean, is oh, this yeah. is it short sighted? Yeah. So if you look uh, at the Toronto area, so Toronto itself has opted in, but as you mentioned, uh, Oakville and, and a number of the other communities surrounding Toronto uh, have opted out. Uh, now I'm sure they each had uh, their own reasons, but that looks suspiciously like a. Uh, uh, kind of a suburban, not in my backyard. Yeah. Uh, NIMBY. Uh, NIMBYism. Effect. We yeah. don't need it. They've got one. They can go That's there right to get that. it. Those uh, those gritty downtown Toronto folks. They can have the weed stores. Our respectable communities won't. Well, what's going to happen is likely what is already happening in California. So at the state level, they legalized about a year ago, uh, and expected they have thousands of private stores spring up across the state. Uh, but 80% of their communities opted out. So what's happened instead is the black market uh, illegal sellers are flourishing because you've got the extra demand but no extra legal supply. Uh, but the other thing you're getting are all these delivery services popping up uh, that are buying the cannabis from stores in the cities where it's legal and delivering it to your door in the cities where it's not. So I'm sure that's exactly what we're going to see with all those uh, suburban areas around Toronto. Uh, either people will just buy it themselves when they take the commute in, uh, their morning commute to Toronto or on a shopping trip on the weekend in Toronto, or else you'll see some enterprising people uh, delivering it uh, to order.
So like a, a like a food Uber, we got a weed Uber. Exactly. Skip the dishes. You can skip yep. the pot instead. Uh, your thoughts on how this is rolling out? We're slowly hearing of the licenses that through various people that have been awarded. What are your thoughts on on what you're seeing so far? We certainly don't know all of them. And why wouldn't the government just say, "Here's all the people who we've we've granted license to"? To have, well, they, have they actually given us that list? It seems we're finding out through the people themselves. Uh, they have actually posted the list uh, in terms of the names of the entrants. So right. people who entered as sole proprietors, their name is actually on uh, on the website, the provincial website. Uh, those who've entered, entered as companies, uh, they've got their corporate name there, so we don't necessarily know uh, yeah. who's behind the corporation. So, so what can names- you tell from that list? What, what are you reading from that? Uh, well, one thing on that list uh, is you can see who, which ones are corporate and which ones aren't. So about a third of the entries uh, are corporations. Uh, 64% are just sole proprietors. Uh, the other thing we saw on that list is, uh, so you could only apply once, but you could apply once in each of the five regions. So we have the Toronto, this area around Toronto. Oh, really? For those of us in what we call Eastern Ontario, Ottawa and such is west, or sorry, Ottawa and such is east, we're in the west, and then there's uh, the northern region. So if you were an entrepreneur, you could actually put your name in for each of those five regions. You could only win once, but you could apply in all five. Uh, and the average uh, was three and a half applica- applications. So on average, people put their name in for three and a half of those spots. What that implies to me is a couple things. Uh, first of all, if you've got if a corporation was entering, that's probably a well-prepared applicant because they've gone to the trouble of registering a corporation. They probably already had a business plan. That's one of the people who was probably in the process in December of getting ready to apply for a license, and then all of a sudden the lottery came in. So they just put, okay, we'll apply for that. But the fact that we've got 64% sole proprietors, I suspect a lot of those are people who just kind of said, you know, they talked to the, their friend or their spouse over the Christmas break and said, hey, let's, let's throw our name in the hat. Uh, oh, yeah, we've never sold uh, cannabis before. And, in fact, some maybe, maybe have never sold anything before. Yeah. But they realized, hey, you know, this is an opportunity. If we get one of those, we can make some money. So I think a lot of those sole proprietorships are going to be starting from scratch, uh, quickly putting in their license application this week. And they're supposed to be up and running by April 1st. Um, just over three months away. Well, less than three months away, I guess it is now. Uh, can, sorry, go ahead. Oh, so I was just going to say, so I think we're going to have a small number of those entrants who are well-prepared. Uh, they've got the corporation, they've got a business plan. In fact, they probably have already rented uh, or at least figured out a location they could rent. And then we've got this large number of uh, what are going to be mom-and-pop shops uh, scrambling because they've got probably nothing. Are you surprised that only a third of them are corporate? I thought we'd see more than that. Oh, I thought we would too, but I mean, the number of corporations is relatively small, but each of those corporations was probably thinking, uh, you know, they're going to set up a chain. Yeah. Uh, Like originally, the big cannabis producers were talking about, okay, we want 100 stores to start. And then they found out they were not allowed to have stores. So on the chain scale, I think the corporation's yeah, would have been looking at uh, multiple entries, um, but that's 
not going to happen, at least not in the short term. Now, for comparison, Saskatchewan ran a lottery uh, about a year ago when they gave out their licenses, and they allowed uh, multiple entries, and they actually gave out a third of their licenses uh, to multiple license holders so they could actually get some small chains going. Uh, what does I think there was six for the Hamilton area that were designated in this area. I may be incorrect on that. Um, but considering there's over 30 stores that are running illegally right now, how will that break down after this, after April 1? Uh, well, one of the reports I saw said that four of, so of the whole eastern, sorry, western region, so Hamilton out to Windsor down to Niagara, uh, of those apparently there are four names that somebody said, yeah, those are Hamilton names. Right. Uh, so that looks promising for Hamilton. Uh, but you're right, that's only going to be a small portion of what, uh, the existing demand is, but actually that's, given there's only 25 stores across the whole province, that's actually pretty good. Uh, consider that Toronto is getting, what, five or six um, for several million people. Um, but yeah, it's, it's obviously not enough, um, but the province said, hey, they only want to start with 25. Michael Armstrong is here with us, Associate Professor at Goodman School of Business, Brock University. Michael, thanks so much for the time. Going to be interesting to watch this roll out. Thank you. Interesting indeed. Bye. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.